Welcome to the Rise Network podcast show, a podcast dedicated to help you reach your dream lifestyle through investing in real estate. We're going to be sitting down with new, intermediate, and experienced investors to talk all about real estate and how it has changed their lives. If you're looking to scale your portfolio or even just get into real estate investing, you're in the right place. Make sure to tune in. Hello, everyone. You are listening to the Rise Real Estate Investing Podcast with your host, Austin Ye. And Mayu. What's going on, everybody? What's, what's going on, Mayu? How's, uh, how's everything going? I know uh, you got some big news to share. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So last day, last day was yesterday. Uh, so that was exciting. It was uh, more so just like just going in, like doing like administrative stuff. And um, yeah, there wasn't really anything to it. It was just I wrapped up most of my stuff over the weekend on Monday. So then, yes, it was just pretty chill. Um, so today is the first day of self-employed and like, I refuse to call it retirement. Cause like, you know, you're not, you're not fucking retired. Oh, <laughs> you're, no. you're just going harder than ever. Right. Um, which is like, but you're doing something you like and you like really enjoy. Right. So it's more of an enjoyable process, but, um, yeah, I was just telling you before we hopped on the preamble, like, I don't know what I'm going to do today. I'm kind of like, Hmm, what the heck am I going to do? Like, <laughs> You didn't plan the week out, eh? No, I did it. I planned out like, yeah, exactly. So I planned out like, I plan out months, right? Like I plan out like, okay, these are like the milestones I want to hit in the coming months. And I plan, I do have like a weekly plan. I did the the 12 week, uh, 12 week in a year, which basically like makes you like plan out like these milestones per week. Um, so that's good. I'm going to take a look at that and start to like, figure, but like, I don't have like a, I, it used to be with work. It's like, okay, like I've got a work meeting at 10 and I've got a work meeting at like one or two or whatever. So like, I'm going to squeeze in like these like real estate things or mortgage things during the day. Right. But now I'm like, my entire day is kind of like open. I'm like, oh shit, <laughs> Like, what do I do now? <laughs> well, there are a couple of things that you had in mind, right? Um, the coaching side of things, has that taken, I know we're not interviewing you, but just out of curiosity, yeah. has that, like, are you starting with your students or just starting a couple? Yeah, starting a couple of students, but that's going to be in June and July. So okay. it's, a, it's a lag, like a lagged indicator or whatever you want to call it, mm. like a lag result. Yeah, so it's going to start picking up a bit later. And yeah. obviously on the uh, social media side, like if you're if you're breaking into the mortgage broker space, it just, or not brokers, or mortgage agent space, of course, like you need to start popping out content yeah. to, to show the world that you are one. Yeah, the, deal, the deals that I've done so far have just been kind of like word of mouth, like people that know that I'm like a mortgage agent will tell someone else. And like, it's been very organic. Um, I think I've done like five or six deals, like nothing crazy there, but it's just been more so like quiet. Uh, and then like, five or six part time is pretty crazy because you just think about it. I'm just thinking like how many mortgage agents, brokers have just not done a deal within their first couple of months, you know? Yeah, yeah, that's true. But like, it's tough because not, like in the self-employed and especially mortgages, you have to just keep working on the next, really whatever I work on today will probably fund in like July, right? Yeah. So you're always just working with like a lag, like that makes it tough a little bit, but it's, it's also interesting. We'll see how it goes. Um, uh, yeah, and I'm thinking I'm going to open up more coaching calls as well, actually, because I'm like, I've got time, right? Like I basically made it like, don't say busy. that commit to it. And then your schedule is going to get packed. I guarantee your schedule is going to get packed up with stuff <laughs> soon enough, man. We'll see. <laughs> right? but, but previously, like I, I had to stop my coaching calls. Cause I was just like, man, like I don't have much time. So I do like, I think I had like availability for like two hours a week. Right. So it was pretty tough. Um, but I think I'm going to open up like more weekday slots and stuff like that. So we'll see how it goes. What's new with you, Austin? Yeah, what's new on our side? Uh, I guess we'll we'll start off a bit on the wholesaling side of things. We sent out where we're going to be sending out a hundred thousand flyers. We already sent like a good majority of it. And we're How much does a hundred thousand flyers cost? Uh, good question. I don't remember off the top of my head. 
I think I did five thousand for like a grand or so. But then like yeah, I I, I know I the prices know. increase. That's why. Like when we came back from Mexico, because we didn't send flyers for while we we're at Mexico, because we didn't want to spend our entire time on the phone, right? Yeah. Yeah. But we had pretty decent bird dog leads to kind of keep the business operating and still sending deals out. Um, but then when we came back, we were just like, okay, like we got to go ham. Um, so we didn't send flyers for three or four weeks and now we're sending out hundred K we're going to try to keep that consistency going forward. Now that we have an extra member on our team to help us with those type of calls, we've been training him to handle some of the disposition emails as well. Like those write-ups, yeah. um, what else is there? So those two things, and then, um, trying to get a bit more either flip projects going on or bird projects going on. Um, and we mentioned this before about the raising capital challenge. In terms of update on that, I think we're on day 17 right now of the 30 day challenge. And I'm on like day 11. <laughs> yeah, you're like probably day 11. I skipped, I skipped a, I think I skipped a day so far. Um, and I don't remember why. I just skipped one day. It was like a Facebook Live, but that's been, that's been panning out pretty decently. Like someone in the group, um, Danielle, like shout out to Danielle. Um, I might be speaking prematurely, but she's had a couple of good interactions with people that might, uh, pan out into something in the future right yeah. um and it's just by that consistency and for myself as well um i have a project that no not a project like someone reached out uh like a seller wants to close on may 28th and they reached out two days ago but right like that's super quick yeah. uh, but i was able to talk to our private lender to get that to get that financing right at over a hundred percent of purchase price you guys um, hopefully that, that deal goes through and you guys are going to flip that one, right? We're going to flip that one. Yeah. So the tax assessed value was about 223K in 2016, and we're purchasing at 210K. But the big caveat is, is we don't know the condition at all, right? And this person who's owned the property hasn't lived in there for like six or seven months. He's like, yeah, I kind of just yeah. left it and went somewhere else. So I don't know what the rentals are going to oh, be. Six or seven right? months? Months or years? Uh, yeah, six or seven months. Like he kind of oh, just left cool. it. That's right? right. Yeah. So I don't know like how bad it, it's going to be or even if it's worth taking on. Yeah. But we have like <laughs> closings on 28th and our inspection condition inspire expires on the 25th. Uh, <laughs> so like we have ample time to kind of do that due diligence, but he wants a quick closing. Um, so we'll, we'll figure out to see if the numbers really do truly work out. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's kind of what's been going on uh, on my side right now. That's okay. cool, man. Yeah. And you guys have some active flips going on right now as well, right? Yeah. So also on top of that, we, uh, we closed or not closed. We're closing on, um, a property down in Sudbury originally tried to wholesale it, but there was no, there was some interest, but no really takers on it. Um, so we're just like, okay, we think this deal is good enough for ourselves to keep and got it appraised at 124, 124, 120K or something like that above our, our purchase price. And if the person, if an individual bought it, it would appraise at a hundred thousand above because our fee was about 25K, right? Um, yeah. And it just goes to show there are still deals out there in the off market space. And I, we actually saw a post in Rise Network that said there's no deals in off-market. Oh, right? I saw your response. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, I, I wouldn't say, like, I, I just wanted to set the expectation straight because that was a vast generalization. I know wholesalers out there that are still pumping out deals. Not every deal makes sense to a particular investor because they analyze it differently, right? Um, but they're like, depending on your criteria, what type of an investor you are, there are going to be deals out there, although they're obviously more far and few. It's, it's like how people always say there's no deals on the MLS. And I always talk to people that have bought pretty solid deals on the MLS. Even recently too, right? Yeah. Like they, it's yeah. still out there. 
So we're going to jump straight into the podcast now. We have a very special guest, Ryan Carr. Some of you guys might already know who Ryan Carr is. He's been in the real estate industry for a while. He's a full-time real estate investor, started as an auto mechanic, I believe, and he's from the GTA area, mainly investing around the Durham region. And uh, he's like a chameleon of strategies in real estate. He can find a property. He's done land severance, like duplex conversions, um, coaching houses. Like he can do anything with the property, really. His specialty is bringing something to the highest and best use, right? So finding a property, seeing what, how can he add the most value to it, and then being able to refi it or flip it after. So phenomenal stuff. And he has a book that's coming out talking all about his strategies, right? And it's, it's called The Highest and Best Use. As I mentioned before, you can find it at thehighestandbestuse.com. Link in the show notes below. Um, but yeah, I mean, Ryan is a phenomenal book of knowledge in the real estate world. And today's episode is going to be no different. We're going to dig into Ryan's background and also how he goes about analyzing these deals. Hope you guys enjoy. Hello, everyone. We are joined with our very special guest today, Mr. Ryan Carr. Ryan, how's everything going? Hello. Hello. Thanks for having me. This is great. Awesome, Ryan. So for everyone that doesn't know you, uh, why don't you just give everyone a quick update on yourself? Yeah. Uh, again, thanks for having me on. Ryan Carr, uh, full-time real estate investor, 33 years old. Uh, I grew up in Markham, just north of Toronto, currently reside in Durham region. Um, I've been investing since 2012 and full-time since 2014, uh, of which since then, I think we purchased about 58 properties, uh, a bunch of rentals and flips, and uh, a lot of infill development as well. Uh, I operate a full-time staff of four to six people plus subcontracted crews, and uh, we really enjoy what we do. That's phenomenal, dude. And that 58 properties, it's comprised of a lot of multis as well, right? They're not like all single families. They're like Correct. a mix there's, of everything. That's right. There's some multis in there. There's some development in there. There's, uh, there's some flips in there. There's a lot of buy and holds, basement apartments, uh, land severances, minor variances. It's a, it's a mixed <laughs> bag. We keep it fresh. <laughs> so Ryan, let me ask you this. Before you went full-time into yeah. real estate, were you doing the single family and so on? Or were you already in the space of like, did you jump right into kind of these... I don't know what to call it, like creative approaches to real estate. It would be creative. So yeah, when I first got started, I was a mechanic. So I was, I was building armored cars. I had no real estate background. Um, you, you, I don't know. I like, I didn't even know the cost of a two by four. Like I knew nothing about real estate. So my wife and I bought our first place. It was a rural property bank sale, fixer upper type of thing. Uh, my realtor was like, look, you know, you can get something in Oshawa cheaper than you can buy this place in the country and you wouldn't have to fix it. And I said, well, yeah, but I kind of want to project, uh, I think we'd like to go forward. So we ended up buying it. We flipped it, made some money, bought our first rental property, which was a duplex conversion, rented that for just shy of a year. The tenants freaked me out, sold the property, made some money there. And then we had seed capital to go ahead and continue running the business from that. That's awesome. So you started off with the like, flip duplex conversion. Was that popularized at the time? Cause now every investor is doing that, right? Yeah. I mean like the flip, I don't, I don't know if there's any ever not being a popular time to flip. You know, I don't, I don't think that was a big deal, but I mean like, the basement apartment, that's been the ticket for the last, you know, five, 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's what I meant more. So the basement apartment was that like, how did you figure, how did you run across that strategy? Cause as a first time investor, you don't inherently go and look at zoning and, and just be, try to figure out if you can add suites, you know, it takes some time. You got to be in the industry to know that those type of things. Yeah, I know what you mean. So like the basement apartment, that whole thing, like the legislation from the government uh, was basically coming in as I was becoming a new investor. So uh, yeah, to answer your question, that was like, that was the thing as I was getting started. So I just jumped on the bandwagon. You know, I didn't really know any different people. So, that's what people were doing. So is it kind of similar in timing to how like garden suites are, are kind of working its way down the legislation 
Yes. Um, at that time, it was the basement suites. Dude, thousand percent base like basement apartments then were the gold standard. Garden suites now will be the new basement apartment. Like one thousand percent. I've been saying it for a couple of years. Like the royal ascent and all the stuff. You know, legislation coming through Bill One Hundred Eight. Mm-hmm. The the garden suites are the ticket. Like this is this is the next big wave. Yeah, I think we want to get into all of those things, but let's slowly start progressing through. Okay, so you you started off with the flip basement apartment, and uh, what what eventually got you to do real estate full time? Were there like a couple projects in the pipeline, or you just said screw it, I'm gonna make the jump? I got laid off, so so like none of the above. Um, <laughs> That's awesome. The best yeah. the best for the best force into real estate full time, right? I know. Man. You was, hopefully, you got severance. Uh, <laughs> I, got I, I think maybe a little bit. I forget. It was it was a long time ago. Now I'm an old I'm an old man now. 33. <laughs> so, um, how I got started, like, or how I ended up going full time, was yeah, just that. So I did a couple deals, right? Uh, in the meantime, those were successful. I was working full time, and then I got laid off. And then my wife was like, "Well, look, you were good at doing the real estate thing. The market's good. You're good at it. Why don't you just keep on rolling with that?" So I said, "Okay, well, let me let me see what I can do here." So I. I went, I found a couple more deals. I think at that time, I do most of my deals solo, but uh, I think at that time I'd taken on a couple JV partners, right? Just to kind of get the ball rolling. And um, yeah, we snapped up a couple properties. I added value, like I typically like to do. Even in those days, I was good at adding value with uh, uh, renovation, zoning, um, basement apartments, things like that. And then that just kind of progressed naturally into the business where I hired more staff. So, so Ryan, are you just a, are you just super interested in like building code and zoning and like stuff like that? Like, is that like a passion? Cause I know like me and Austin, like, sure. We'll, we'll check zoning if we have to, we'll, we'll check building code if we have to, but it's more like a, Oh, here's a deal. Like what, like what's zoning? Like what are the rules around this? Can we make it work? Is that just some, an interest of yours or like, how did you go about getting knowledgeable on that? That just kind of came organically. So when I started doing these deals, I was always into like the creative side, you know, what could we, what could we achieve? that maybe somebody else didn't see, or, you know, like what, what type of opportunities are there that other people in the market aren't really visualizing yet, or maybe the realtors aren't aware of it, you know? So I always liked those opportunities and that naturally evolved into um, all the rest of the deals that I've done ever since, you know? And then I realized, okay, if I put a, if I put a handle on this, like how can I group all of these concepts in together? And that's where highest and best use came about. That's amazing. Yeah. Uh, when I speak to a couple of developers, they say that there are still some deals on the MLS, not in the GTA, but like uh, outside of the GTA. So I was speaking to someone who was looking at development project in Niagara and they just see things different that an average investor can't. Um, and although that is a great strategy, it does obviously come with its own inherent risk, right? Like, are you like, when you get into a project, um, do you ever worry that things won't pan out? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I do. <laughs> um, I, I do. So whenever I'm going into a deal, I'm looking at what's my upside potential and what's my downside risk. Those are the two mm-hmm. things that I need to know on the way in. And if the odds are in your favor, then you can push. And if, if the odds aren't in your favor, then you might want to reevaluate, you know, and especially in a tumultuous market like we have, you know, we got, we got COVID, you know, the whole global thing, big problem. But then on the other side, we got asset prices that are running out of control. So like, what's going to be, what's going to be the long run effect of all Mm -hmm. of these things taking place? Our asset price is going to come down. Are we going to see further inflation? You know, what's going to happen? Are we going to have government intervention? You know, so upside potential downside risk. That's how I evaluate those deals. Gotcha. And when you, when you evaluate upside potential, um, you're doing kind of unique strategies, right? So I believe you, you, you've done coaching houses, so on and so forth. Um, for something like that, how do you evaluate upside potential? Because you do need comparables. And a lot of the time, it's hard to find comparables on something like this, right? So how do you judge ARV? For sure. So I'm always looking at three things. I'm looking at highest and best use of the land, the highest and best use of the structure, and then highest and best use of my own skill sets and time. 
right? So those three things are how I evaluate every single deal that I've done. And even before I knew what that meant, I was still doing it. I just didn't know how to put it all together, right? So now when I'm looking at, we'll just start with number one, when I'm looking at highest and best use of the land, that's what I'm checking. You know, that's what I'm checking zoning. I'm saying, okay, what can I do with this dirt? Is it best as residential? Is it best as changing the use to like maybe commercial or maybe high rise or warehouse? Like what's, what's the best use of it for, right? So how wide is the lot? How deep is the lot? How big of a building can I put on it? Can I cut that land in half or can I cut it into three or four or five? What can I do with this dirt to find the value? Okay. Mm-hmm. Typically speaking um, in land severances, more titles means more value generally. Right. So if you can take a piece of land and cut it into three townhouses, mm-hmm. those three titles would probably be worth more than two detached. Right. Just as a, just as a general. So that's number one for land. As far as structure, I'm looking at the building itself. Like you guys are doing some wholesaling. So for example, some people that might not want to get into construction, right? You just say, okay, I don't even care about the structure. I'm going to wholesale this off to somebody who understands construction because that's not my forte. That's one way of dealing with the structure. Don't touch, right? Number two would be, can I put multiple units within the existing structure, right? Can I do a basement apartment? Can I do three units, turn it into a triplex, top up renovation, coach up? What can I do, right? So that's another way that I'm looking at it. Um, the third way would be part of the severance, right? Do I whack it down and start fresh? right? Is this house just too far gone? Is the land worth more than the building? Right? Do I start again? What do I do? And then number three is, okay, do I have the chops to pull these other two things off? Do I have the time, the financing, the skill, the knowledge? Do I need a coach? Like, what do I need to do to make these things work? So that's how I'm looking at all my deals. And that's how to come up upside or come up with upside potential and downside risk. That's awesome. So, so I know you're doing a, a lot of your investing, I think in Durham, right? Like in the Durham region, Oshawa and so on. Um, have you ventured out of those areas? And is there something that you see in Durham that maybe other people don't see? Like, is there a reason that you're focusing in there? Yeah. So I'm up the 401 corridor. So from Durham and East, that's kind of where I like to operate. Uh, Durham is great and it continues to be great. The challenge becomes asset prices, right? Because the market is so hot and the cash flow is slowly dwindling, depending on how you're leveraged, right? You've got to be very conscious of, of that when you're doing these deals. I'm still able to find opportunities by way of like land severances for example, um, by way of rezoning applications, by way of minor variances, things like that, right? They're there. You just have to understand it and you have to do a little bit of digging, right? And I've just done it. You know, you'd ask me, do I just genuinely like this? Um, I do. I genuinely love it. I think it's a ton of fun, you know, being able to find that value where somebody else didn't see it. Look, everybody wants a cosmetic flip. Everybody, everybody wants to go and just like lay some floor paint the property, you know, make a hundred grand, put it back on the market, right? Everybody wants that. But the truth is they're not as common as they maybe once were because the market is so, so hot, right? So when people are out there looking, if they skip past 50% of some of the stuff that maybe I see, or you guys see, that's huge, right? That unlocks a whole other potential. Yeah. I think one thing that you were touching on a bit earlier, when you, when you said you take a look at three things, right? It was the land use, the property, and uh, what was the third one? Was it uh, your skill set? If, if you're comfortable with it, I think the one thing that's limiting for me is is the skill set portion of things, right? Because you're doing some crazy shit. Like you're doing development, you're doing coaching houses, um, you're doing. Have you done like quadplex conversion, triplex conversion, things of that nature? I assume, right? Like those are things that I'm not comfortable with. I come from a finance background, not a construction background. I assume mm-hmm. since you were, uh, uh, I guess, in the automotive industry before, those things also weren't necessarily um, things that you would have been hundred percent comfortable in when you took on those projects. 
how do you become comfortable with that? Because there's obviously a huge capital investment, time investment. And one of those that go wrong can like just wipe you out of the real estate game. Oh, dude, 100%. Like if you mess up a development and you're into that thing for like a million bucks, like that's, that's a problem. You know, and you're into it for a long time, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. They're like one, two years, right? Sometimes. What are you going to wait for the market to, inf- to, to inflate and appreciate you out of the deal? You know, like I, I would never bank on that. So for me, the first development deal I did was a land severance. It was a, it was a double wide lot with a house kind of in the middle, right? And generally speaking, I like to buy property where the house is off to one side. That way you can buy it. You can finance it with the bank, right? Here's a, here's a tip for people listening. If you can find something where there's a property double wide and a house off to one side, you can buy it, you can bank finance it, right? And you can cut the land without having crazy, crazy private lending and all kinds of crazy financing on the side, right? You can just buy it as a normal house. Nobody needs to know that there's upside potential there or some other opportunity, because in the meantime, you have to go through all of the hearings and the political stuff to get it to that point, right? So the first deal I did, the house was in the middle, it wasn't off to one side, but whatever. I said, you know what, I'm going to try this with all of the research and the, like reading the zoning bylaws and all this stuff. Um, with all the research that I did, I was like fairly confident that it was going to happen. You know, I'm looking at, I'm looking at other properties in the neighborhood and I was pretty confident. So I said, okay, what's my downside risk here? Am I going to like, am I going to go bankrupt and lose my principal? No, no, that wasn't going to happen. Right. My downside risk there, it was a few years back, but I'm pretty sure my downside risk there was like, I sold it at a break even after six months. Right. Cause I bought it slightly below market value, even though it was MLS. Right? I sold it at about a break even, give or take. Maybe I lost a few bucks, maybe I made a few bucks, but my downside risk was covered. But my upside potential was like, sweet, I can build a couple new purpose-built duplex homes on this. Right? And now that the rules are changing with coach houses and stuff, that deal just gets even sweeter. Yeah. So you're essentially making sure that... Are you checking to see whether the property that you're buying right now works as in, in its existing use, even though it's not going to make you like crazy bank or anything like that? But like maybe a break is even, maybe like you can rent it out or something like that. And then you have this upside potential that could be like way out there, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I bought properties that are a little bit rough knowing that I'm going to whack them down, right? But if, if you can rent them for a year while you go through all of the politics, like the severances and the applications, right? if you can rent it, even if it just breaks even, like maybe your cash flow negative for a couple hundred bucks a month or something, but the principal recapture on the mortgage balances that off. Like if you're just close to, to even, that's buying you all kinds of time to learn. And there's no replacement for actually doing it. Like no coach will ever be able to replace that effort for you. You just got to go in and feel it and do it. You got to talk to the town. You got to get your hands dirty and you got to, you got to do it like for real, hire a planner if you're concerned, but like, you know, that comes at a cost too. So whatever you're most comfortable with, I would say if you can rent that property, start there. So Ryan, let's say I want to go through with something like that. Um, in this market, you got to put everything unconditional. How can I get all of this due diligence done before putting an offer in? Or is this a solely have to be off market and you kind of are the only person that has the lead? And it's, it's, it's tougher. So it like, there's no question it's tougher. I can look at a development deal like in five minutes now, I'll like do my zoning map thing. I'll read the bylaws. I'll look through it and I'll be like, okay, what do I know about the area? How can I justify what I do or don't want? Right. And does that make sense? Okay. Let's move forward or let's walk away. But for anybody at home, um, I started by reading the zoning bylaws. So if you go to the city that you invest in, they're all like, they're pretty much all the same. Go to the city that you invest in, type in like city name here, zoning bylaw, and it's going to pop up some 400 page document. Look up the zoning that your property has. Maybe it's like R1 for residential, R2, something like that, and read what that actually means. You know, so for example, maybe you buy an R1 zone property that's uh, like a 40 foot wide lot and it's 120 feet deep. Okay. Standard infill lot, very standard. If you're reading all of that zoning, 
and it says that you need to have a minimum 40 foot lot. Well, you're not going to cut that lot into two 20 foot lots because you're not even close. Right. Mm -hmm. But if you have an 80 foot lot and the house is off to one side and your zoning says, Hey, you need to have a 40 foot lot. Well, maybe you can cut that in half for a pair of forties. Right. That's how I started. Right. You can also now with, Oh dude, now with COVID uh, this is great too. You can watch all of the minor variance hearings and rezoning applications and council meetings online. Like you don't even have to go. I had to physically go and sit there, right? While council was talking about all their stuff and listen, and I just, I did that a handful of times just to understand the language that these people were using because it's, you know, like you can speak French, you can speak English, you can speak Mandarin, you can speak any language you want, right? But speaking planning is a completely different subset. Are you listening in also to see what kind of exceptions are being made or like, what's the game plan there? Like, you, are you yes. just, was it purely just to like meet these people and like get in like their radar or? It was both. So, I mean, A, learning, learning who goes to these meetings, B, learning what types of people and what language end up at these meetings, and then C, what are they approving? Mm. You know, if, if you got a 40 foot lot and zoning says you need to have 42 feet, well, will they approve a two foot reduction? Or is that like, is that a no go because the neighbors get really upset? Right? What does that mean? Um, if you have a 50 foot lot and you really only need to have, or you're supposed to have a 70 foot lot, will they approve a 20 foot reduction? Like that's substantial, right? What is considered a minor variance and what is no longer minor in nature, right? Because there's three tests that you'll learn when you go to one of these meetings that you have to pass. And if you could summarize it in one, right, is the request minor in nature and does it uphold the intent of the bylaw, right? That's the rule book for the town. That's what it is. So Ryan, it really works then like you really do have to circle in on a certain area, right? Like it doesn't work if, you know, you're going to yep. be looking at properties in Sudbury, then in, in Oshawa and then in something else. And it doesn't work in that approach, right? Like you basically have to like zero in on an area, focus, like choose your market and, and whatever, and go in hard on that. Right. In terms of specifics. Yeah. To have like, to have that, that 2% edge over somebody that doesn't know the market. Yeah. You would need to know like what is council approving um, in terms of like general stuff. If you got a big lot and you're pretty confident that, you know, it, it meets criteria in the zoning bylaw as is, you could probably push for that and just, just like be okay. But I mean, to really, really know like the nitty gritty of the city and, and where they're trying to do more development, where they're trying to do more intensification. Yeah. You gotta, you gotta be market specific. Okay. And how are you figuring out the cost of these pretty significant either developments or projects that you're taking on? Right. Because part of calculating upside is knowing what your cost is as well and yes. what the outcome is going to be. Yep. For sure. So, I mean, splitting land is one thing. Construction is a completely different animal. Um, a lot of people have this misconception where a developer is the same as a builder and they're very, very different. So when people say, oh, I'm a builder, like you're building stuff, right? When people say I'm a developer, there's a good chance you're doing the land planning portion. They're different, right? Some people do both. I do both, right? But when you get into larger subdivisions or, you know, condo towers, hundred stories tall, um, oftentimes the people that do the land are different than people that do the actual structure itself. Mm -hmm. And and how are you projecting costs in, in your projects, for example, right? Are yeah. you like, it, I, I feel like it's something that with, with some renovation projects that me and Ma, you do, we can ballpark it, right? Cause it's simple enough. You know, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I had a basement apartment. We already have precedence of what that's going to cost by talking to other people. Yep. Some of the things that you do are extremely creative. So I don't know what precedence there is. Like, are you talking to people, creating a very detailed scope of work? Or are you just ballparking things? Yeah, for the, for the most part, I'm a back of the napkin kind of guy. So like when I'm cutting land, I know, okay, a rezoning application is five grand, um, a land severance application is five grand, uh, a survey package is between three and seven grand. You know, so like I'll add all of these things up until I get a rough final figure. 
And if a piece of land can be purchased for X, and you know it's going to be roughly you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50,000 to cut in half, maybe that's why, we add those two things together. And by the time you figure out what that newly severed parcel is worth, do the math, just subtract. <laughs> that uh, seems super simple. And then, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure the very, I'm sure the very first one is always going to be a learning curve, right? Like I'm sure when yeah. you first started off, you, you probably didn't, I think you said like, a, I don't know, you know, you said so many things here. That I don't know what half those are, but I'm sure it was kind of a learning curve as well for you. So, so Ryan, let me ask you this. Cause I think um, a, a good chunk of our listeners are, are newer investors or people with one, two or three properties, right? So I'm thinking like, what's the most applicable for them? Likely they're not going out and trying to put like 10 townhouses on a lot of land, like anything like that. But let's, I, I kind of want to hone in on the garden suite side, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from your research and everything you've seen there, and, and this is my like very like naive, like interpretation of this, right? If you've got a good sized backyard, like a lot of these houses in Scarborough, Etobicoke, et cetera, they've got like deep lots, right? Mm-hmm. Are you in theory, just in the future, going to be able to build a separate structure in the backyard, as long as there's some sort of access way to it? Yeah, that's exactly it. So, I mean, if I get overgeneralized, like really, really overgeneralized, if you could put a detached garage mm. in that space, you could probably put a coach house in that space. Mm-hmm. Awesome. Very, like very general, you know, excluding parking and lot size and stuff like that. Like yeah. that's, that's basically what we're doing. Instead of the garage being used for parking or your riding lawnmower, like people are going to live inside this thing because it's purpose built for that purpose. Right. So you can put a garage there, coach house. So there's no questions about like, like technically like a house in the end of your backyard you're going to be looking to everyone else's backyard. Like, is there like no issues or no, no rules surrounding that? Like, yeah, only, I mean, you know, like a corner or like, I don't know. Like, <laughs> yeah. yeah, for sure. Like a lot of the coach house stuff is so fresh and so new yeah. and every city is going to be having their own rules and their own bylaws and their own, you know, in some cases their own building code uh, for that. Most of this is going to come from the Ontario building code, which says you have to be so far away from your lot line. Mm-hmm. You have to be so far away from the back of the existing residents and things like that. But I mean, you know, coach houses aren't something new. You know, they've, mm-hmm. they've been around for years and years. And a lot of like, in a lot of places east of Toronto and a lot of places west of Toronto, coach houses were always a thing as of right. But they were, they were always a thing and they're still a thing. Now in the city of Toronto, you know, the laneway house is the new ticket. It's the same thing yeah. as a coach house, right? It just yeah. happens to be on the, in the back laneway where there's no services. So you have to run your, your water and your sewer through the existing house to get it to the street. Right. Like, like what's all this new again? This isn't, this isn't like, we're not reinventing the wheel. This is a, this is just a coach house. That's it. It's a garage. Yeah. That's interesting. Cause I've talked to some like, cause the price of these, these like bungalows in Etobicoke and et cetera, um, they're getting up there. Right. So it's like, what's the play? Like what are investors like trying to do here? So then the most common one you hear is like redevelopment. Right. And then like from talking to a few people, it's been like, look, this is going to be this future potential to potentially add a backyard suite. Right. So if you buy this existing bungalow with like a, a main floor, right. And then you add a basement unit or duplex or whatever you want to do. And then if you add the third unit on top, right, as a second floor, which is a second floor addition. And then if you add a garden suite, you've now made the single family house into a fourplex and your valuation, your cash flow is just crazy, right? So the, yeah, so some people are definitely like moving on that potential. That's awesome. So I'm curious, Ryan, like what do you think not enough people are talking about in the development play? Is it the land severance or are too many people looking at the land severance? Or is it like, I don't know, like the residential to commercial or commercial back to residential, which I think is also a thing right now in COVID, right? Yep. There's all, you know, I mean, like there's all kinds of opportunities out there with respect to all of those things that you just said, if you're good at one particular thing, double down on that. Like if you suck at cutting land, like just don't do it or hire a planner, hire somebody that does know, you know, RPP is a designation for a, uh, for a land, a registered provincial planner or registered professional planner is what it's called. Like mm-hmm. 
these guys and girls will come in and they'll cut the land for you. You just have to pay them a fee, you know, no different than a wholesale fee for somebody that finds you a deal or a contractor's invoice for somebody that, you know, builds at your basement. You're going to pay them a fee to do that work because maybe it's not your strong suit. Even if you see opportunity, like, look, if you can take a piece of land and you can cut it in half, right. And keep the house on one side. And this new piece of land is worth 200,000. Well, wouldn't it make sense to spend 10 or 20 or 50 or even a hundred to get that cut because the remaining equity there for you is what's left going in your jeans. Like to me, that makes a lot of sense. You know, the basement apartment was the ticket. Like we mentioned earlier, the coach house is a new thing coming through, right. And cutting land. If you can find that dirt creatively should definitely be considered. No question. My, that's something we should consider on our, me and my actually have the perfect property for this. Yeah. <laughs> something that we, we should definitely consider. You should, um, you should. We were at a point we were thinking about just putting like two tiny houses on it. We are like, Let's just drop like two of these tiny houses, but the cost of construction <laughs> for a tiny house isn't necessarily cheap either. Right. Like yeah. we thought it would be like 40 grand. We we're like, Oh, let's just like look into this. How much is it? And then it was like the quotes we were getting were like North of a hundred. We we're like, well, okay, that's, that's not insignificant. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But it, it's, it's true. Like the, the tiny house thing, I did a tiny house in Oshawa, as you guys know, and, and it was, it was a great project. It got a lot of notoriety. Um, we were on, I think we we're on, f- five, like in five major newspapers or something like that. It was a while back, but like we had a hundred thousand hits on Facebook. It was huge. Yeah. You know, did like you get some hate for that as well or no? Was that someone else? Did we get what? Did you get some hate for that as well or no? Yeah. Or I got some hate for that. Okay. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know why. Like how the hell, how the hell can I get hate for like the cheapest house in the market? It, it blows my mind. Like people were just like smashing me on Facebook and stuff. I'm like, whatever. But like, <laughs> I, th- I, th- I think the bigger thing here is that um, when I did that project, I really realized, and I knew this going in, it was just kind of a fun thing to do. We made some money on it, but like, I really realized that because the cost of the land is so high in these urban centers to go and put a tiny house, even on a postage stamp, like the economics don't justify, then it has to come from the top down, from government down, not from the developer side, bottom up. Mm. Right. And what's happening is we get various constituents in these neighborhoods that say, we want tiny houses. And we're like, okay, well, what do you want to pay? And they're like, well, we don't want to pay that much. And I say, okay, well, let me, let me break it down for you. Okay. A building lot, let's just say a 30 foot building lot, right. Could fit a tiny house or maybe two or maybe three fair. Right. But a tiny house nonetheless would fit on a 30 foot building lot. So a building lots, at least a couple hundred G's right in the city of Toronto, it's probably like 800 grand. And in the city of like Belleville, it's like hundred, right. Depending on where you're building. So let's just say 200. So you got 200,000 bucks on that piece of vacant land. You have to pay frontage charges, right. For the water sewer. You have to pay the hookups for the water sewer. You have to pay development charges, which could be $70,000 or more. Yikes. Right? <laughs> yeah. All of these fees get really, really crazy. And when you start adding them up, you're into this thing for like three, 400 grand for a tiny house. People go, well, I'm not going to pay that. Right. <laughs> well, of course you're not. You're going to go buy a condo because you can buy a condo for less. And it's basically mm-hmm. a tiny house in the sky. Right. But now the value of that land is being amortized over 50 units or hundred units instead of just your structure. And it's the same cost to service a tiny house with water and sewer and hydro as it is to service, you know, an eight bedroom mini mansion. So that's where the economics are completely skewed. It doesn't work. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I guess there's just not enough incentive for, for developers, builders to even pursue tiny houses in that case, right? You might as well just build a a house, just a full blown house, right? Yeah, that's right. And you know, people say, well, I'll, I'll go up North. I'll build a tiny house up North. Like, okay, go up North. And then they say, well, how much is it going to cost me to build a tiny house up North? Probably less. Right. But then go and look at the value of a real house up North. And that's mm-hmm. also comparably less. So if you're going to spend a couple hundred thousand on a tiny house, you might as well go buy a real one. Exactly. Exactly. 
Um, I did want to, so I, I, I think people in our audience really like to hear real life examples of, of deals that have previously been done. Yep. Um, I want to talk about a deal that I guess you, you might've seen and other people saw as well, but you saw something that other people who were looking at it couldn't see. And what was that? What were the numbers in that? And how did that deal pan out? Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, like I've, I've, I've done tons of these where I'll buy a corner lot, I'll cut the backyard off a corner lot onto the adjacent street, right. And keep the house that's existing. I'm doing one of these deals right now where I basically got land for $0. I took a double deep lot. I cut the backyard off, right? Um, the house that's there, we cleaned up, we're going to rent out. And then I'm going to build something fresh or redevelop the land in behind. That's like, that for me is a bread and butter deal. You know, you can have the land for nothing. You sell the house for probably pretty close to market value or maybe slightly less than you paid, depending on what you bought it for, MLS, whatever, right? And you're, you're able to find and create this land for nothing. You guys might've heard me say this before, but good deals are found, great deals are created. And the, that, that is like one motto that I've lived by for a long, long time. And that's really mm-hmm. helped push me forward in some of these deals. Yeah, I think especially in this market, you need to be much more creative to make things work. Cause it just, it just doesn't, like even if you buy something off market, yeah. the spread is getting cut thin nowadays, right? Especially yeah. in such a hot market. So definitely we need, a, my, we need to start living by that motto as well and <laughs> stop looking for that cookie cutter basic deal because it's not happening anymore, right? <laughs> it's tough, Ryan, though, because like when you get into this development space, you're looking at like one to two year timelines versus, you know, if you just did that cookie cutter flip that we talked about, paint, flooring, whatever, yep. you're probably in and out in like four months, right? Like it's pretty easy, quick projects, right? So it's kind of a little bit of a trade-off unless you have the expertise that you have where you're able to make the profit of like eight flips in like one development deal. And like, you can do that in like a year, then yeah, like that's a no brainer, right? Um, but I, I'm just curious, like what, what, what does like the numbers look like in, in a market like Oshawa, if you were to buy, I think like one of those corner lots today, you're paying like seven, $800,000 almost for one of those, like depending on where, obviously, right. Depending on where. Yep. Yeah. So then if you're severing it off, you're going to spend about like 50,000 in costs. Is that like something reasonable for someone to expect to sever off a plot of land? Yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. So then, okay. Let's just say you bought it at 700, you're all in for 750. And then that plot of land, what is it? I mean, you're probably looking at like 200 K or so to like sell off that land, right? Probably maybe, maybe a bit more like it's going to change if it's, if it's detached, if it's semi-detached, you know, but yeah, two to 400,000, I think would be reasonable. Yeah. Okay. So, so then I guess the game, the, the plan there is you sell off the land and you keep the house or are you doing the opposite? You're selling off the house, you're keeping the land. You can do either. Oh, that's, fair. that's the beauty of it. You know, like, like, let's just say, let's just say you want to transition from being an investor doing like basement apartments and flips and stuff into development. Right. So what I did was I said to myself, these projects, you know, you mentioned it's going to take one to two years, like for a rezoning application, it's going to take a year. Like it just will. And now we got COVID and all this other stuff. So like for me, I had to start here. I had to plan for one to two years out for this development deal to pan out. And then in the meantime, keep filling the pipe so that when I got over here, my development deal started to make sense. Right. And fortunately, because we're in a rising market and the market's so hot, like you can be a complete bozo and make money in real estate and do nothing. Right. Like abs, like I'm, I'm serious. Absolutely nothing. The market's so forgiving. But like, when you think about it creatively, you can make that lift. Plus you can make the creative lift. Plus you can get it from the severance. Plus you can get it from the rental income in the meantime. Right. So mm-hmm. think about it, stacking all those things together. It starts to make sense. So transitioning from developer to, um, or from like real estate investor basement apartments to being a developer, you're doing that. And then over here, you're doing another one. And then over here, you're doing another one. And by the time you get there, well, now you're at that first development deal already, right? Now you're full-blown developer because you're working one to two years ahead. 
it's that cycle. Mm-hmm. You got to keep throwing forward. That's how it makes sense. Are, are you ever worried that there is, and this is like the huge topic nowadays, a correction in the market, given that the timeline for these projects are a bit longer, right? Yep. Yep. I am. Mm-hmm. Yes. And it, it, what, how do you account for that? Like, are you, because that is downside when you say, what's my downside? What's my upside? Obviously the upside is there yep. in a market like this, where we're seeing things just like, you know, appreciate double digits in a matter of months. Um, how are you, have you pivoted your strategy or is this something you're still pursuing? Yes, I'm still pursuing it. So again, upside potential, downside risk, good deals are found, great deals are created, right? I live by it. If you go into a deal and you say, okay, that piece of land, let's just keep it really, really simple. And we'll just use one number. Okay. That piece of land is worth net 200 grand to me. Let's just say, okay. You cut the land, you do all the work, net 200 grand. If you're buying an $800,000 house, like, are you saying that the market is going to fall 20% or more? Maybe, right? But let's just say the market does fall 20%. That's pretty significant. Where are you at? Well, you're even. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right? You're, mm-hmm. you're even. Yeah. What you've done is a lot of people are trading options in the stock market. What you've done is you've just bought Enbridge stock instead of at 100 bucks, you've just bought it at 74. Right? Yeah, yeah. That's what it is. So, you know, what's, what's your time worth? If you go back to zero and make no money for those two years, are you upset or did you learn like a really valuable lesson? Probably, mm-hmm. you know, I wouldn't be upset, but you'd learn a ton. How do you protect your downside risk? That's how I'm looking at it. If the market keeps going, then you're a rock star, right? But mm-hmm. always look at your, it's like when you guys are buying wholesale deals and off market stuff, if the, if the house is worth 400 grand and you're picking it up for 280 and you close by the time you like pay some fees and private lending, whatever, maybe you're into it for 300. There's still a hundred thousand bucks of buffer there. So if the market falls 25%, like you're neutral, you're good. Yeah, You're good. Right. I look at development deals the same way. Mm-hmm. Same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's very interesting. Yeah. That, that totally makes a lot of sense when you just paint it that way. Right. Generally, I try to overcomplicate things when it comes to a bigger scale, but like when you just simplify like that, it definitely makes sense. Okay. Ryan. So it's like, it sounds, the development side sounds great. And I know there's significant upsides, but I think developers are also, I think compensated for the level of risk that you take as well. Right. So you take on these bigger projects with potential bigger upsides and you mentioned the downside risk as well. So like, what's the scenario where things have gone wrong? Right. And like, I guess what led up to that? Yeah. I was doing a development recently, actually, that got stuck in a, like in a neighborhood character study. So I was, I bought this property. Uh, things were going pretty good. And then all of a sudden, a new bylaw came through that restricted development in my particular area. Right? So I'm like, oh, okay, this is good. New, new developer stuck in this problem. What am I going to do? So I got stuck in a neighborhood character study. So what happened was the neighbors all came to like town council and they were complaining. They're saying, hey, you, you developers are like whacking down all the old supply in the neighborhood, taking the bigger lots, cutting them in half, right? And putting up these bigger homes, right? And when that was happening, we were, we developers, we're basically overbuilding on the parcels that, you know, for the neighborhood, they were overbuilding on it. So what they did was they restricted how big you could build. They restricted how tall you could build. Right. And that became a problem for some people building in the luxury space, right. Which I don't do. Right. Mm-hmm. Because those people need to max out the footprint because that's what their buyers want. Right? They want three car garages and they want two and a half, three stories and they want rooftop patios and they want some of this crazy stuff. Right. I like, I don't do that because I'm buying and building for myself. Like I don't do outside work. Right? Um, so for me, that became a problem. Now I factored that in on the way in knowing that, okay, if I hit a snag, what can I do? I carried that property for the most part through the majority of this development and through all the, like all the paperwork and politics and stuff. I put a tenant in the property. 
that's what I did to work myself out. I mean, did I take a loss? No, I still smashed that deal. It was great. It was really, really great. Right. But the point is that kind of stuff can happen so fast and it's completely out of your control. So what you do to mitigate on the back end, you know, that's aside from the politics. Mm-hmm. So people who are going in there solely for the luxury space and they didn't have any other game plan, they might've overpaid for something. They didn't calculate the downside risk properly. So if that was the only strategy, they, they got the shot themselves in the foot. Yeah. There's a, there's a hierarchy in the real estate industry that people don't talk about enough. Right. And if you, if you put it into a triangle, you got the luxury market up top, you got the mid tier or the move up home buyers, and then you got the entry level product. Right. And then you get your tenants below that. But those three tiers are effectively, you know, when the market goes soft, the luxury tier gets smashed, they go down to the mid tier. Right. And then when the mid tier goes soft, if it goes soft, they come down and run into the entry level product, that entry level product, that's like, that's the saucepan that's catching all the drippings from the Turkey. Right. That's like, that's the one that's the bread and butter of the industry. Tenants want it. Entry-level home buyers want it. First-time home buyers want it. Mid-tier people, they don't want to rent. So they'll, they'll buy something before they rent. They'll sell that house that was too big for them anyways. Right. Everybody yeah. comes down, but the luxury stuff, Jesus, right. It gets, it gets hammered. So um, that's why I don't play in the luxury space uh, because they don't carry. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot. It's kind of the same way. When you think about it, Burr, when we renovate, we do things to cater to the masses. Yep. Your strategy is catering to the masses, right? You're not, you're not operating within a specific niche. That is genius. But Ryan, I'm curious. So in the luxury space, is the profit margin significantly higher? Cause like I follow all these Instagram pages that develop all these houses and I'm like, Oh, I want one of those one day. So I'm just like, you know, why would someone go into luxury space? Ultimately the profit margin must be higher, right? Yeah, it depends. If you have a brand, behind you. Like if you're, if you're a reputable builder, um, the luxury space can be profitable because clients know what to expect. Uh, if you're a spec builder and you have a rockstar agent, you know, that's out there just like crushing deals for you. And they're really good at the marketing game and they know how to fine tune that buyer. Like you're building to an avatar, then yeah, you can, you can do really well. There's a lot of guys out there. And again, not, you're, you're probably seeing a trend here. Not enough people talk about this, right? Is that there's people out there building luxury product and not making any money. And they're doing it as a passion project because they've overbuilt. Right. And they've paid too much for the land and they're too based on ego. And the problem with that is when you go for ego, you end up losing it all. Right. You just, you just lose, you don't win. And you're not looking at your numbers, right? The numbers are really what matters. And I give this example often where um, when people are doing new construction, right? Everybody thinks that the developers and the builders make all the money. The money's made in the land. And the money is made in the design. It is not made in the construction. Okay. And the example that I give is if somebody put up a beautiful, you know, not, no, not, not beautiful. If somebody put up a home, three bed, three bath, 2000 square feet, whatever. Okay. And they painted the whole thing, bright yellow floors, shingles, toilets, carpets, hardwood, everything bright yellow. A buyer is going to come in and they're going to say, Hey, brand new house. Great. But I'm going to pay you less than market because this place is ugly. Okay. Now take that same house. The buyer's going to come in. And if you don't paint everything yellow, architectural shingle, beautiful hardwood, granite countertops, color coordinated designer, everything, chandeliers, right? A buyer's going to come in and say, Hey, beautiful new house, three bed, three bath. I'll pay you over because it's touching my emotions. Mm. Right. And when you look at those two examples, it's the same bricks and sticks. It's the same rolling of the paint on the wall. It's the same labor, right? It's just one was pretty and one wasn't. So when you separate that out, people are paying for the design. They're not paying for the fact that the house was built, right? Huge difference. That's awesome, Ryan. Okay. So 
I think that was, I think you dropped a lot of knowledge and everyone that's even mildly interested in development. I think um, the development world is a whole, uh, whole other like kind of breadth. And I, I know you've got a book out as well that, that should be coming out, right? Uh, yeah. The highest and best use. It is. It's coming out spring market. We're, we're pretty much here now. So it should be coming up pretty soon. Uh, the highest and best use playbook. Uh, I've, I've been writing this book over the last number of months. And again, all the things that we've talked about here today, the highest and best use of the land, the structure, and your own skill sets and time. We're going to break that down um, within the book. And it'll be a couple hundred pages, something like that. And uh, you should be able to get it on Amazon when it comes out. Um, I think it's a great tool for like anyone that's even interested in that space. It's just like, how do we get started, right? And that's always like the biggest, um, the biggest challenge. So I think it's cool. Uh, Ryan, usually at this time, we like to ask our guests um, three, three questions, a wrapped around questions. Where will we be seeing you five years from now? Five years from now, I think I'm going to be in a very similar space. Uh, I do enjoy what I do. I think I'll be doing less of what I'm currently doing than be more of a delegator to the team. I think I want to grow my, uh, my teamwork skills and be more of a managerial role, but I still do enjoy what I'm doing. Awesome. And uh, second question is, is if you want $10 million and you had seven days to spend it, you can't spend it all on real estate. Sure, you can buy a couple of properties here and there, but uh, how would you spend that $10 million? Ooh, seven days to spend it. I'm buying some cars for sure. I'm definitely buying some cars. I like cars. I've got a few cars myself and uh, I really do enjoy that stuff. So we'd be going to the racetrack and probably on some really fancy vacations and going to Las Vegas or something like that and uh, spend it that way. Love it. Love it. You know what I find that a lot of real estate investors don't know how to, won't know how to spend that $10 million personally, because we're just so invested in buying assets all at the time that becomes a hobby. So it's nice to hear that you have a hobby outside of uh, real estate. You know, you know what I think it is? I think we spend so much time being broke, right? Like money comes in and goes out right? that we just don't know what we do with that. Well, it's, it's awesome. It's funny that you added that little twang. Like if you had to spend it in seven days, because when you started the, that question, I was like, Oh, I'm reinvesting into the business. And then you're like, Oh, you got to spend it in seven days. I'm like, damn it. What are we going to do? I'm going to enjoy it. Yeah. I'm going to enjoy it. That's right. You yeah. know what? Um, I've realized over the last couple of years, and I'm getting better at this uh, from, a, from like a personal introspective approach. Uh, I'm, I'm getting better at saying, okay, what are you working for? You know, a lot of people say like, what's your why? That's fine. That works for them. For me, it's like, what are you working for? You know, is it, is it to make money and then like die just to say that you made it? Or is it to make money and then spend it with your family and enjoy your time here? You know, like what is it? So, so for me, I'm, I'm definitely getting better at that. I think a lot of investors should try to take that approach as well. I do. Awesome. So Ryan, if you could have dinner with anyone dead or alive, who would you choose and why? Steve Wynn. I'm going to have dinner with Steve Wynn. Uh, Steve Wynn was a Las Vegas real estate developer. Um, very, very prominent in the 80s, 90s, 2000s. He's built a lot of really great stuff and he's got a lot of creative strategies, some of which I'm going to talk about in the book. Awesome. Yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for joining us in today's episode. This was definitely an amazing episode. I love how you break down what seems like complicated subjects to newer investors and even to someone like intermediate, like Mario and I, the complicated subjects, but making it easy to understand. Right. So love that about you. And if people want to reach out to you, how can they do so? Yeah. Two ways to connect one sign up for the book at the highest and best use.com. Uh, you can get it there or uh, send an email through that website and you can get in touch with me that way. So I'll be coming out in the next couple of weeks. You think? Probably not the next couple. Well, it depends when this podcast goes live, but uh, anyways, sometime between yeah. now and summer. Okay. Nice. Awesome. Um, so all of the links to Ryan's social media, his YouTube channel, Instagram, and to get the book is going to be down at the show notes. Um, if you guys enjoyed this episode, make sure to like, subscribe, comment, do whatever you can to support the podcast. It helps bring great guests like Ryan out here. And uh, Ryan, again, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you for all you've done for the real estate community. 
And until next time, everyone, invest smarter and live better.